All right, everyone. I'm checking my levels here. Welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. I, off the top of my head, don't remember what episode this is, but 65 maybe. Doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm in the middle of a hundred things. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I've got uh, a screen to my left, a screen in front of me, a screen to the right. I've got my camera to my left. I was hoping to get on the motorcycle and get out and try this technique that I've been thinking about for a while, but I got sun now. It's supposed to be cloudy. It's not. I can't use, I don't want sun. I need clouds and uh, I don't have anything officially for work until 7 p.m. tonight when I give a talk from 7 to 8.30 tonight, which I will do from the van because I don't want to torture everyone else in this house and make them, you know, hide or be quiet or anything. So I'll be doing that from the van. So I had a couple of minutes. I'm uploading uh, Question and Answer Film 41, which probably go live later today. That's my third film this week. None of them are particularly good, but three films this week. I've been trying to crank and just get into sort of a flow with uh, filmmaking and just learning like one small new thing per film. And, uh, so uh, that's it, man. I am here doing this podcast, and I had a couple of minutes, and I thought, you know what? I'll bang out a podcast. I, got, I think I got some good material this week, some good, fun material. But before we go any further, I just got off the phone with someone, and I want to provide a public service announcement. Before we get to who is this for, who the hero of the week, and the go to the week, and then all the points, I want to, uh, I want to do a public service announcement. And I mean this in all seriousness which is rare because most of what I talk about on here is not that serious. Just got off the phone with someone, and they are a right-leaning political person. You you could even say pretty far right-leaning, although I don't think they consider themselves that way. So we're in the middle of this conversation, and this person starts referencing a story that immediately I say to myself, this seems a bit off. So they're saying this something, such and such happened, such and such happened, and I can't believe it. And they are basically veiling it in the sense of, well, you know, this, this, this story was real, and I can't believe it happened. And it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the Biden administration, and I, ju- I just find it embarrassing for them, right, which is complete passive-aggressive. She doesn't find it embarrassing at all. In, in essence, what it is is this is solidifying her and her point of view. But the story itself seems very far-fetched to me. But I'm polite. I say, that's interesting. I've never heard of that story. Can you tell me more? Well, it's official. It, it, it was reported. It's official. It's a real story. I said, really? So, quote, it's reported. And I said, do you remember who the source was? No, 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 but I saw it. It was, um, and, and then, you know, I know it was somewhere because I saw something or I read something or, you know, it was reported. It was official. So as I'm talking, I go and I Google search it. And there's two sources that pop up, Fox News and The Washington Times. Now, I knew this person was very familiar with Fox News, but I said, do you know anything about The Washington Times? And of course, no, never even heard of The Washington Times, which is kind of incredible in itself. But within a 90-second search, I realized that this, one, it's completely fabricated, the story. But it's also based on something that happened in 2020 that's been modified, morphed, changed, adapted, and twisted by the media that this person watches. And so is it my rule in life? Is it my job in life to like correct this person? No, because I don't think there is any way for me to correct this person or even share anything that would get them remotely to change their view 
not only on overall topics, but on this topic, just this tiny one small thing. They are, they are entrenched, embedded in, this is real, this, this happened, this is reported. The People, it wasn't. It's fake. Trump's one brilliant move was fake news. Fake news, fake news, fake news. Everything's fake unless you come to me, including my family. Don't even believe them. Don't believe any people around me. Don't believe the, quote, best people. It's only me. So we have to be better than this. This, again, just puts on a level of, it, it just, we're lettering in stupidity and at a, at a professional grade, like a sashimi-grade stupidity that is permeating our culture. When someone says it's reported, anyone with half a melon on their head says, who's reporting? And then you work backwards to figure out if it's real or not. That's called fact-checking. That's called verifying a source. That's called getting multiple sources. So, yeah, it just was another reminder of how far gone we actually are as a country. And, um, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm losing a lot of interest in this place, in my, in my home country. Still think it's a great place. I do. A lot of amazing things about it. And I'm going to talk about something in a minute that I think is, uh, for me, is so completely dear to me and endearing that I, you know, I don't have any plans to leave right now. Depends on what happens with this next major election. The midterms are going to be a, sort of a barometer, but I think the next major election could determine whether or not I bail and go somewhere else that I find more interesting or stay here. I don't know. But for those of you out there going, what is this? Is this a political podcast? No, it's not, actually. We're going to hit a whole range of meaningless topics that are going to be far outside the meaningless politics that we talk about on a daily basis. So you might be thinking, who is this podcast for? Well, you know what I'm here to tell you. My phone's on airplane mode. My Zoom H6 recorder is, is literally on fire, the flames. I need, some, I need some cold beer to put out these flames. And this is for anyone who proposed to their partner at the swamp buggy races. If you were at the swamp buggy races, let's say that you're next to the sippy hole, then and you said, man, this is the time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose. And you got down on your knee in the muck, and you proposed to your opposite, then uh, this is, podcast is for you. And also, this is for you if you are anyone who complains about immigrants while eating at a Chinese lunch buffet. Now, let me repeat that. This podcast is for anyone who complains about immigration while eating at a Chinese lunch buffet. The reason I brought that up is I was sitting at a Mexican restaurant that's flying L3 above the top of the restaurant. And the guy at the table next to me was complaining about immigrants. And I thought, you know what? Doofus doesn't see the irony in this. I, literally, I don't think he would have ever crossed his mind once that his favorite chimichanga was probably made by an immigrant. And yet here he is spouting his immigrant views in public at a restaurant. Again, dumb. We are. We're, I'm all in, man. I just slid all my dumb chips to the middle of the table, and I'm all in. So that's who this podcast is for. Hero of the week. Tons of them. And I'm throwing myself in, in this week. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But the first is anyone who hosted a 1970s, 80s, or 90s Saturday morning fishing show. And for you guys out there, or you gals who are country folk, you know who I'm talking about. The Roland Martin and the Bill Dances of the world. 
If you have never seen Saturday morning fishing shows, then you are not living, my friend, because they are a very peculiar form of entertainment. And they are very specific. And 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 Bill Dance had the giant, I think it was Tennessee, had the trucker hat, man. That Tennessee trucker hat was on. It was like stapled to his skull. And these boys are fishing for hogs. They're in the, they're fishing for lunkers and uh, they're worming off the bottom. And if you haven't seen Saturday morning fishing shows, they are in part my heroes. Okay, also, women's Tour de France. The men's Tour de France, which we're also going to talk about in a minute. I know it's a little late to be talking about this, but there's something that I read that just blew my mind. And I thought, you know what? I got to mention that. Women's Tour de France. The women who are this, first of all, they don't get the credit, they don't get the coverage, they don't get the same treatment, which sucks and is ridiculous. These women are incredible. Their riding is incredible. Their bike handling is incredible. And this, you got to check it out. So any, anybody who finishes the Tour de France is a hero in my book. And um, the women who uh, won, and I don't remember her name, I think all three of the top three placing women were from Europe, which means they don't exist because I'm an American. Just kidding. Uh, and also the women's team for England for, for winning the Euro Cup. I know that for you Euro types out there, you Euro trash, um, that, that soccer game is, is life. It's, it's oxygen. It's O2. And I get it because we have our own stuff here, like swamp buggy racing. For every soccer game, we got a guy in a garage in Ohio building a 20,000-horsepower floating tractor. And um, that's how we roll here. And also Vin Scully, who was the broadcaster for the Dodgers for like literally something insane, like 60 or 70 years. Vin Scully had a very, very distinctive voice. To anyone who was in the Dodger Nation, Dodger Circles, this guy was an institution to say the least. And baseball broadcasting is an art form. I don't care if you hate baseball. That is an art form. And I was not a, I don't listen to baseball on the radio for the most part. Um, I, I've, I was not like a disciple of Vin Scully. I don't, you know, I know who he is. I'd heard him many, many times on the radio, but that was not really something. I don't watch a lot of baseball. I don't listen to a lot of baseball. But he was an institution and he finally passed away. And last, hero of the week, we're, we're going to stick with sports. And if, you, and if you don't consider fishing a sport, well then F you and get off of my podcast because it's definitely not for you. Fishing is a sport. Uh, the last hero of the week is Serena Williams for just saying, I'm done. Like I'm going to, my life's going in a different direction and I'm leaving now. Bye. See ya. Um, I'm, I'm over it. So no long drawn out tour, no long, you know, ridiculous, um, public display matches and players tanking matches to let them win. Nothing. She just said, I'm done. And oh, by the way, by far the most badass women's tennis player I've ever seen. Now, Serena, at times, let's be honest, seems like she could be a little, a little prickly. I get it. But I've also attended the event where she and her sister were like subject to a lot of like racial abuse from the fans. And seeing as where this was held, no big surprise. So what they've had to put up with, where they came from, very interesting story. And she is by far the best female women's tennis player I've ever seen. Now, again, we're talking generational differences You've got um, Margaret Court, and you've got Chris Everett, and Martina, and uh, Steffi Graf, and a, a lot of other players. But Serena was incredible, and her record speaks for itself. Okay, go to the week. These are goats, not as in greatest of all time, but as in just complete asses. And there are there are always too many to choose from. 
So Josh Hawley's fighting it out for this week. He, he's he's trying, to, trying to get this. Little Mikey Pence, who is trying to throw his hat in the ring for 2024 and cannot bring himself to use Donnie's name in public, which is so embarrassing for Mike Pence. Mike Pence has no chance whatsoever. He's a stiff. He was a stiff in Indiana. He was a stiff as VP. He's gutless, and Trump's going to just trample him. And so he will go out in public and try to campaign without using Donnie's name. And it just doesn't work. And it just makes him look weak. So my advice to him would be to bail. And I don't know, work on a smaller level, work at a local level, and try to do something good for your immediate surroundings. I just don't think uh, national politics is going to fly for him. Um, Gosh, I mean, who else? I I already have my goat picked out, but I'm going to get to him at the end. Donnie for pleading the fifth. Hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. I mean, how many recordings of him talking about only guilty people plead the fifth? You knew it was coming. You could see it from outer space. As soon as the FBI raided, as soon as Letitia James had him and got, you know, got the approval to put him in front, uh, put him under oath, uh, you know, the oath doesn't mean a whole lot to him. And that's what brings me to the real goat of the week, which is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life when it comes to court proceedings. And just so you know, I've sat in on multiple criminal trials over the years, one, because I had personal connection to them, and two, because it was part of my job at one point. Not like that was my only job, but that's all I'll say. But anyway, I've sat in on multiple criminal trials. They're fascinating, very interesting how they work. Uh, And so when I saw Alex Jones on on the stand, it was hard to comprehend what I was seeing. And the judge twice had to say to him, I can't believe I have to say this again, but you're under oath and you have to stop lying. You, you actually have to tell the truth. Now, they claim that they got him twice for lying, for perjuring himself. And again, this is all allegedly because I don't think there's been any, any trial or any perjury charges levied against him. But when I saw him on the stand, it looked like he wasn't telling the truth every single time he opened his mouth. But what was amazing to me was not that. You knew he was going to do that. You knew he was going to turn into a circus. You knew he was going to go straight back on his show and do everything he was told not to do. That what's surprising, and I think this speaks to a greater issue that comes from the president all the way down to local law enforcement, and Uvalde is a really good example of this, is the system of checks and balances that is in our government doesn't work. And it hasn't worked for a long time. But the, the crazy part is that I think in great part, the checks and balances system was almost like the honor system, like in school where they put a bowl of candy on the table and they're like, do not under any circumstances eat that candy. But if you do, write your name on this list and admit that you did it. And right, the, the teacher comes back, the bowl's empty and there's not a single line on the, name on the list. The honor system, all it took was one incredibly corrupt guy in Donnie to just burn the whole thing down because now everybody is just getting outed right and left and right and left. And there isn't absolutely no penalty for any of these people. So, you know, he got fined, which is a joke because it's just a fraction of a percentage of what he's got. And he's, and apparently he's been, you know, he's got money secured in various places around, which is what a lot of wealthy people do in the States. You know, they don't keep their, their money in Wells Fargo. They, they, they launder it in some cases, and then they also just go offshore so it can't be traced and it can't be taken if they are found guilty of doing something. So if you haven't watched Alex Jones on the stand, do it. Regardless of what side of that story you're on, 
It is fascinating to watch someone who has no interest in playing along with being under oath on the stand at a very public trial. It is. It's fascinating to watch it. So again, you could be the biggest Alex Jones fan, or you could be the, the, his, his least, least favorite person. He could be your least favorite person. It is incredible to watch what happens when he dismantles that entire courtroom. And also the courtroom was really small and kind of what a bummer these places are. They're so it's always like a low ceilinged, mostly brown and white, awful looking conference room. I, I can't imagine being a judge and having to work in those courtrooms like that. You watch a movie and they look like the Taj Mahal, and then you see these trials in real life and you're like, that's the most depressing place. That's like going to the DMV. It's horrible. What's happening? That's supposed to be an important job. Okay, so that was our let's 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 recap here. Public service is look for your source, right? Look for a source. If something is quote reported, you better find out if it's real or not. Okay, who is this for? Anyone who proposed to their partner at the swamp buggy races and anyone who complains about immigrants while eating at a Chinese lunch buffet. Welcome aboard. This podcast is for you. Hero, anyone who's Hosted a Saturday morning fishing show, the Roland Martins and Bill Dances of the world. They're gods. They're gods among men. Women's Tour de France winners, England in, women's English soccer team for winning the Euro Cup. Vin Scully, myself, which I'll get to in a minute, and Serena Williams. And the goat of the week, it was Josh Hawley fighting to the death with Mike Pence and Donnie pleading the fifth. But the one who rocketed the cream, the cream of the week was Alex Jones. Absolutely incredible performance in the courtroom, just dominating, just dominating. Posted a picture of the judge on fire. That's the kind of, that's the kind of, uh, you know, spunk. That's the kind of attitude I want to see in my, my uh, person that's being criminally charged. Okay, point number one of the week, my Patreon site is gone. I might have mentioned this before. I don't think so, but I'm mentioning it now. I briefly toyed with Patreon uh, because several people ask me if I would do it, people that wanted to financially support what I'm doing online, which is embarrassing. Not for them, for me, because I just find that weird. But I was like, I know a ton of people use Patreon. I don't know anything about it. I should at least get it, use it, learn about it, and then decide whether or not to keep it. So I did, and I deleted it. Patreon is a pretty amazing thing. It really is a cool platform. And if that was my only thing, let's say that blurb went away and I only had YouTube, I would probably start Patreon again and I would be able to spend, you know, I would get back 85%, 90% of my time. And then I would be able to do things specifically for the Patreon people who are supporting me. So I did one thing. I gave away a camera bag and I said, look, you know, you guys are on here. So I did a random name selector and gave away a camera bag. But for the most part, I was like, I just don't have time to maintain this this group of people, and I feel like I'm neglecting them, and I feel like I'm taking money for no reason, so I shut it down. I may do the same thing with my Discord server because, again, I don't have that much time to, to, to give towards it. And the Discord thing is really interesting. I think that's another really viable platform, and if you have time to invest in it, you could build an absolutely mind-blowingly good community that has none of the nonsense of Facebook and Instagram or Twitter or anything else where you're dealing with advertisements and all of the different um, culling of your, of your feed and what you see and who sees what you post and all the nonsense that people keep putting up with. And the crazy thing is I had a conversation with someone, very intelligent person, 
And they were talking about Facebook. And I said, I'm sorry, I made a decision not to use those platforms. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg. I don't believe in the platforms. And they said, well, you know, the people I have to deal with, they're on it, and I'm never going to get them to change. I'm sorry, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work. You create your own network, and if they won't come, screw them. Then, they, then they're not in your circles. Build a circle of real people on your own platform at your own time and stop using these idiotic networks that are tearing apart society and cultures around the world. And if you're looking for a better source of misinformation, you will not find anything better than Facebook. And uh, oh, by the way, if you're complaining about Trump and still using Facebook, you're an idiot because they were in great part one of the reasons why he got elected. And so all my lefty friends, all my lefty snowflakes out there who think the world's fair, who are still using Facebook and complaining about Trump, it is moronic. It's ironic as well that you haven't put those two things together. So enough is enough and move on, which is what I did with Patreon. Okay, number two point of the week. We got to talk Shark Week. Now, this is like the 35th year of Shark Week, which seems crazy. It doesn't even seem like cable television has been around for 35 years, but apparently it has. I, I, I was misinformed because it was, quote, reported, and I got it wrong. So, Shark Week. Now, I'm interested in sharks. I'm in saltwater, at least here in Maine. I'm in saltwater pretty much every day. Everyone here is terrified of sharks now because of all the white shark sightings all the way from the Cape up to central Maine, where there were two sightings last week, and then someone got killed last year. And um, there's tons of white sharks now surrounding the Cape. And people are terrified. I've spoken to them, people that said, I don't go in the water anymore. I only go up to my knees. I don't, you know, people are really worried about white shark attacks here. And, you know, Mr. Whitey, the white pointer, is definitely not a shark that messes around. Even if you, you know, get an exploratory bite that's often enough to, to take you out. And by the way, if you haven't seen the footage of the shark attack off of Sydney in February of this year, if you were ever not afraid of sharks and you see that footage, which is graphic to say the least, warning before you go searching for this, um, it is insane what you are seeing in that film. Uh, that's enough to make you never get in the water again. But, you know, the sharks are just doing what they're doing, and this guy was in a bad spot, and he's wearing a wetsuit, and he's in seal country, and, you know, two and two makes four, and he uh, is no longer with us. It's a brutal, brutal, brutal thing. But here's the thing about Shark Week. I think it's kind of jump the shark, because they're now—I've literally seen five minutes of Shark Week stuff, and people are doing— crazier and crazier and crazier things in the name of, quote, research. And it's really not the name of research. It's about entertainment and views and making money and getting eyeballs on how crazy. There's a guy in like a fish tank and in the water with white sharks and the shark comes by and bumps it and then does what a shark does, which is go deep and come up and rams into it and it breaks and the guy panics and the whole thing. And you're thinking, you're watching this thing thinking, you know, if the shark got him, you kind of have to say, good on you because the guy there's no reason to do that tell me what part of research that's benefiting that is done for television and done for getting people to watch the channel and i feel like every time i now watch shark week i see some something dumber and dumber and dumber 
I saw another thing with a robotic shark where the sharks were circling it. And of course, you know, we got to film this from the air and with the drone and the water and the boats. And the people who were talking are like, no one's ever done this. No one's ever done this. No one's ever done this. And it's like, well, I'll tell you why, because it's really stupid and there's no point in it and there's no scientific value. And you're doing it because no one's done it and you think it's going to get views. So I think someone, this is going to end in death for someone. During Shark Week, somebody's going to do finally do something so stupid that someone dies and then they're going to have to walk everything back. That's my my point of view right now. And again, sharks are interesting and cool. And the and Shark Week does have, you know, good stories and interesting researchers. And there are people out there in the world doing their best to study, understand and protect the sharks. And I get that. I love that. But I also think that television and social media has driven us off the edge again when it comes to Shark Week. Okay, point number three and the reason why I am the hero of the week. It's done, people. It has been done. A phone call was made. There was dialogue. There was a credit card produced and a number dictated over the phone. A down payment was made. Four, drum roll, a 2023 Honda CRFL 300 Rally motorcycle. Dun-na-na. It's done. Put a down payment. Put my order in. These bikes, like everything else in the world, are incredibly hard to find. They are incredibly hard to get. There's few scattered around the U.S. They are way far away from where I am right now. You're looking at another five, six, seven hundred bucks to ship a bike. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get a new bike, not a used bike. And um, I finally put a down payment in. And so I cannot wait. I'm sort of silently obsessing about getting this bike. I will probably uh, most likely sell the Yamaha TW200, which is a very, very, very hot bike. They're impossible to get. Everybody wants them. Bikes that are 30 years old are still selling for half the price of a new bike, and new bikes are selling for over asking price. I've had multiple people pull in the driveway here in Maine and ask to buy the bike from me, but I'm going to keep it at least for a while. My, my preferred methodology here is to sell it to my brother so that we keep this in the family, and then I get the Honda. I don't need two motorcycles, and I can't imagine teaching my wife how to ride. She's a Boston driver. It will not end well, and so I don't really want her on a motorcycle. Even though the T-Dub is really just an off-road motorcycle, it's, it's okay on a small road, but it, anything over 50, 55, and you're not very happy on that bike, there's no windscreen, and it vibrates like crazy. It's just not built for that. So it's better than some small dual-sport bikes, but it's still not that much fun when you're going that fast on the bike. So the Honda has a, is a 300 instead of a 200. It has much. It has a real suspension, although suspension that comes on the bike is total crap and, and it's probably going to have to be replaced. All these bikes have a tragic flaw. Every protagonist does. But the Honda has a four-gallon-plus four fuel tank, which means over a 200-mile range. It has suspension. It has uh, digital readouts. It's got a windscreen. It's a six-speed. Um, it has great reliability. It's liquid-cooled instead of air-cooled, which is very important to me in a place like New Mexico. And it's got great track records. And everybody, even the hardcore dual sport guys, seem to love this bike. Everybody universally hates the suspension. So my guess is 2024, 2025, they are going to fix that part of this bike. Um, 
but as of right now, it's it's going to be what I get, and I'm I'm assuming at some point I'm going to have to replace that rear shock because apparently the one from the factory is is a joke. But anyway, it's coming. I am so excited about this. I've been riding bikes for most of my life, and but I've never had a bike that I can do the distance like this off road safely and entertainingly. Because the last bike I had, I had a, I had a 600 V twin Honda Dual Sport called a Transalp. I rode that for three years. It was a great bike on the highway on the road. But it was so heavy when you got it off-road that it was, if anything was loose, sand, mud, whatever, it was a handful. And the bike was really heavy. The Honda is much, much, much lighter. It's much more of a street-legal dirt bike, but it's also got the long-range tank and the fairing and everything else. So Honda really did their work here. Everybody I know that has the bike likes it. And even, again, most of the reviewers who are hardcore ADV guys who are, you know, merciless in their, in their assessments— people love this bike. So, and it's not crazy expensive. That's the great thing about these bikes is they're not super expensive. They're considered very affordable dual sport bikes compared to like the Yamaha Tenere and the, um, you know, a lot of the other bigger bikes, Africa Twin and the BMW GS bikes. Um, the only other comparable that's twice the size and a lot, a lot heavier is the KLR 650, the Kawasaki, which is a great bike. But, and if I was doing a long, long, long tour, like where I was on the road a lot more, that would be a bike that I would consider. But off-road, again, it's much, much heavier than the Honda. So I am so stoked to get this, and um, I don't quite know what to do with myself, but I've got a long time to wait. It's not going to come until January at the earliest. So I'm jonesing, man. Okay, point number four. Uh, I'm still reading the bio of Oppenheimer, the book that won the Pulitzer about um, Robert Oppenheimer, the uh, physicist who ended up being instrumental in the development of the uh, atomic bomb. Very interesting character. Uh, there is so much to learn about Oppenheimer. And also, he's a very uh, motivating, inspirational guy. Not to say with without his flaws. Definitely was a flawed human being. But also, a couple of things about him that I, I absolutely love before I get to the point of this point. Oppenheimer was inc- incredibly well-rounded, and well-read. He was a physicist, but there were people who were better at physics and better at math. But Oppenheimer had an uncanny ability to connect everything from literature to history to poetry. He was a huge poetry fan. Literature, history, poetry, physics, math, culture, society, psychology, all of it. Later in the book, about 400 pages in, you talk to this guy who was trying to place like students at schools and colleges in the U.S. This is back in the 50s. And he went to Oppenheimer to say, look, I've got a couple of savants in the physics world. Where do you think these, I should place these guys? And so Oppenheimer told him. And then he goes, well, what other kind of students do you have? And he's like, oh, well, I got like a psychology person and a creative writing person and a, one who wants to do Greek and one who wants to study Native American history. And Oppenheimer knew everything about these fields and where to place them, and what schools, and what individual instructors, and how the pros and cons of each. And the guy said, he simply left the office and said, I've never met another human being like that. I've never met anyone quite like him. But there's one thing about Oppenheimer and myself that we have in common. Maybe more. Curiosity, obviously. He spoke like seven languages, which is not me. I barely speak one, and sort of a little bit of, you know, Te amo, Mexico. I speak a little bit of Spanish, uh, but it's pathetic. Oppenheimer spoke 
and could read in like Greek and Latin and everything else. So I hate him for that. But curiosity, yes. But also this intense love and fascination with New Mexico. And the first time, and, and he was, he had a ranch up above Cowles and he would ride horses. He would spend mo- three or four months a year out there. It was a very Spartan place. I don't think there was running water. There was an outhouse. And he would invite all kinds of people to go out there. And they would do these horseback rides for like 10, 14 days at a time. They'd ride from Cowles up to the Colorado border and back through the Pecos wilderness and through the over the Sangres. And he was he had this absolutely crazy, intense love affair with New Mexico. And that is in part why they ended up at Los Alamos for um, the lab. And I'm reading this book, and it has made me, for the first time in my adult life, homesick. You know, Maine is great, but I am so homesick for New Mexico. And my friends are sending me films of lightning across the plateau, rain in Santa Fe, their backyards overgrown with shrubbery because of the water, and I am beside myself because I'm not there. And so I love New Mexico. It is not a perfect place by any stretch. It is a hard place in a lot of ways. It is not Meow Wolf and the fancy restaurants in Santa Fe. That is the fraction of 1% of a fraction of 1% of what Santa Fe is. It is so much more. And 10 minutes outside of town, you are in the, po- in the worst poverty you've seen in America. So Santa Fe is an anomaly. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the rest of the state and the mix of cultures and people and struggle and landscape and light and weather and history. It's unlike any place I've ever been. I could photograph there for the rest of my life and never come close to covering it. And I just wanted to put that out there. Te amo, New Mexico. Number, point number five is eventually I will get covid I will, because I'm going to be going back out into the world. In Paris in November, I'll be at Paris Photo, the biggest photo show in the world. I'll be at Polycopies, which is a parallel show running uh, about books, photo books, and I'm going to be doing like probably meetups and stuff. I'm going to get COVID. I just don't think there's any way around it because no one else is wearing a mask, and I can wear a mask to a certain degree, and then I'm going to have to interview people, and at some point that mask is going to have to come off or I'm just going to be around people, and the viral load is going to be high enough I'm going to get COVID. But I think the people who have gotten COVID have, have somehow, instead of saying, look, I was sloppy, I'm part of the problem, they've now created this category of person, COVID dodgers, and that there's this living underground group of people wildly blown out of proportion who are, who are basically at home, coated in saran wrap, sealed in a Ziploc bag, terrified to venture forth, and these are the only people that haven't had COVID. And you guys are full of crap, and you, my friends, were part of the problem. You were sloppy, you were arrogant, you couldn't be bothered, and you went out and got COVID. That's not my problem. All I do, a grand total of one precaution, that's it. That's all I've done. I just came back from three weeks in Albania. A grand total of one precaution... I wear a mask when I'm inside where there's tons of people. That's it. I'm not sealed at home in a Ziploc bag. I'm not in saran wrap. I'm not wiping down my food with bleach. I'm not drinking bleach, Donnie. Sorry. I'm not doing any of those things. I just wear a mask inside. And that is all we ever had to do, and we just couldn't do it because we're lazy and we're arrogant and we couldn't be bothered and we all know better. 
We just couldn't do it. So for those of you who think these COVID dodgers like me, because I haven't had it, are out there doing some crazy stunt to not get it, you're wrong. You're only saying that because it makes you feel better about being sloppy and getting it. So it's crazy. I saw The Guardian had a story about this, you know, people and it had some cartoon of somebody hiding at home behind some plexiglass shield. And I thought, you know what, this whole thing, again, we just don't learn. We just don't learn. We're making bad decisions. Okay, point number six. This is going to hurt you camera people. I call total BS on IBIS, in-body image stabilization. If you are standing in one spot and the camera is not moving and your subject is not moving and you have IBIS in the lens and IBIS in the body, you can make usable footage. Remember, nothing moving. You're not moving, your hands aren't moving, the camera's not moving, the subject's not moving, nothing. You can make usable footage. But if you move around or walk or pan or the subject is moving and there's a combination of those ingredients, that footage is too rough to use. That is why so much of YouTube is slow motion. Nobody wants to use a tripod. Everyone wants to move quick. I get that. I'm exactly the same. I see all this slow motion. And I'm like, why is, that, why is that whole thing in slow motion? I know now. It's because IBIS doesn't work. The only cameras I can handhold are an iPhone and a GoPro. That's it. Everything else shows movement. Now, the Sony camera, the A7C, has a software I can run on the post side that will stabilize, as does like Adobe Premiere, but it's a bit wonky. Those softwares are a bit wonky. They crop, and also you can get some re- weird situations happening in the background in areas that aren't in critical focus. I just tried to hold a camera and, and walk slowly. Flat surface, walking slowly, completely unusable. And I'm like, why am I worried about five stops or seven stops of IBIS when I can't hold any of these things? It could be 12 stops of IBIS, and I still wouldn't be able to hold it. So why are we talking about this? What camera works in that regard? Does the Sony a7 IV, if I'm holding it at arm's length by the lens barrel and walking, is that a usable thing? Or do I have to slow motion myself? I don't know. Please, someone explain that to me. How is everybody making these YouTube films with cameras that do have shallow depth of field that looks like they're shot on a camera with a, with a wide aperture, like a 1.8 or f2 or something, and their footage is stable? What are they using? Because I certainly do not have a camera in my arsenal that works. Okay, point number seven. Let's get back to the Tour de France. And for you in Denmark, you know I'm suspicious. Um, And I heard something that just made me laugh, and I found it wildly entertaining, and I thought I would at least bring it up because I'm a jerk and um, because I'm not fast enough or strong enough or young enough to ride in the Tour de France. So the only thing I can do as a good American is break them down. So... The winner of the Tour de France, Jonas Vingegaard from Denmark, congratulations, unbelievable ride. He said when it came to doping, quote, you just have to trust us. Now, that was probably the funniest statement from an athlete I've heard in a long time. Because if you're looking for a history of doping, Tour de France is, is a good place to, to start. Now, doping in cycling is not nearly as bad as some other sports. Believe it or not, doping in track and field and doping in American football and doping in American baseball, doping is rampant and has been forever. Cycling is like five or six on the list in terms of like 
extension, the extent of doping, believe it or not, because cycling gets a lot of publicity for that, but it's so hypocritical for networks like ESPN to cover American football and then not cover cycling because of the doping. It's just, it's a joke. But when Vingegaard says you have to trust us, I just laugh and say, no, not only no, we don't, but we also have to remind guys like that, that you do not get the benefit of the doubt. You know, there were teams in the Tour de France this year that were raided prior to the start of the race. By everybody's, you know, most cycling experts kind of like shake their head and go, yeah, it's it's still going on. You know, the dopers are always typically a step ahead of the dope tests. And that's for a variety of reasons. A lot of times the tours and things like that, they don't want people to to test positive. But here's the thing. Vingegaard is considered a climber. He, he's an all-around cyclist, for sure, but he's considered a climber. The last time trial, he sat up to not win it so his teammate, Wurt Van Aert, could win it. He sat up. The guy that's a climber, first of all, that is incredibly, for me, I was like, how is that happening? And then Van Aert, who's a sprinter, dropped Tati Pagacha on the last mountain climb, cracked him and dropped him, considered probably the single strongest rider of his generation, Tati Pagacha, and Van Ert, who had been in the breakaway like 10 days in a row or some crazy thing. All of that, to me, was suspicious. Now, I don't care if people are doping. I don't care. It makes no difference to me whatsoever. They are incredible athletes, doped or not doped. I love the sport. I love the event. I love everything about it. I could care less. But here's the one wrinkle that made me think that they have even less credibility than they did before, which is how the Tour de France handled COVID. This is the story that never got the play, but how many people tested positive? A ton. How many teams were decimated, including including Pagacha's team, decimated by COVID? My guess is a lot more riders had COVID than they wanted to admit. And because they were still feeling okay, they rode. Now, there were certain riders who tested positive and were still allowed to ride that day because apparently their viral load was very low. But according to certain sources, which seem pretty relevant sources, they were, they, they, they were purposely not testing correctly for COVID because if they did too many riders would have had it and the race would have probably not looked like it did. So half of Pagacha, his team, was gone because of COVID. All these people are around, even though they're trying to separate him at the rooms at night. This is such an infectious disease. You know, he was losing riders like it took the second half of the tour. He was losing riders like every day, just one, one or twosies here and there getting dropped off the team because of COVID. Chris Froome, COVID out. Um, Tons of tons of riders. And there are stories about people saying they were not testing correctly because they knew it would it would blow the tour apart, which is what happened to the Tour of Swiss a few weeks prior. That race was really decimated because of COVID. So listening to the UCI or the or the Tour de France talk about COVID and then these riders saying you have to trust us with doping, I don't trust any of you. There's too much money involved and there's too much competition and ego and history. And you know, if you win the Tour de France, you're a national hero forever. You know, Lance, maybe not a national hero anymore, but most people who are cyclists, I mean, he's a divisive figure. I don't care that Lance doped. I don't. You, you knew he was doping. If you didn't know he was doping, it was because you didn't want to know he was doping. And so he got a lot of people on bikes, which I've mentioned many times before, to me outweighs the fact that he cheated and was a doper. I just don't care. 
because, you know, it's just a bike race. Point number eight, politicians have to stop pandering via religion to American voters. I mentioned this in a film. I'm not going to go into it depth here. I just wanted to reemphasize it here. I'm so sick of politicians dangling their fake religion in front of us, trying to get us to vote for them because of their religion. It's embarrassing, and we're getting clumsier at it. You know, it's Trump with his Bible upside down, Trump being interviewed, and someone saying, tell us about Old Testament or New Testament. And he's like, I don't want to get into it. Tell us about your favorite scriptures. I don't want to get into it. And it's clear that he's never opened the book in his life. And that is just embarrassing, and yet it still kind of works, because for whatever reason, people get into those camps. But I think we need to end that. Okay, point number nine. I looked up the top 100 free books top 100 free books. And if you think we still have hope in this world, don't look up this list. Do not, all caps, underlined, italics. Do not look up the top 100 free books because what you're going to find is young adult romance novels, books about Jesus, and maybe one about the Dalai Lama. The re- 99% of them are young adult and romance novels. So this kind of explains a lot. It kind of explains how we got where we are. It's not good. The list is like, you're going through the list and you're like, oh no, oh no, oh oh no, for the love of, oh, oh no. And then, oh, okay. And then, oh God, no, 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 no. So I think what we're reading is, uh, it's, it's foreshadowing to where our future is. I knew when I wanted to read the Oppenheimer biography, I would have no problem getting it. I knew I just walked down to the local library here in Maine with a library card from 52 years ago that wasn't mine, and I knew I'd walk out with the Oppenheimer biography because when I'm at the beach and I find those rare people who are not on their phones, which is very, 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 very few people, and I look at what they're reading, it's mostly, oh, no, oh, oh, God, no. Oh, don't read that. Oh, why are you reading that? And I just want to bring that up. Point number 10. I think the media's coverage of heat is a bit over the top. Is it hot? Yes. Are we setting records? Yes. Many of these records that were breaking were set a long time ago. 40s, 50s, 30s. Back in those time frames, you know, when, back when they were the advent of keeping records began, you know, a lot of these records were shattering, were done a long time ago. Now, don't think for a minute that I'm a climate denier because I live in New Mexico. Uh, I grew up in Wyoming. I lived in Texas for a long time. Doesn't take a real genius to figure out some things are changing. And oh, by the way, if you've taken a look at Lake Mead or Lake Powell, for that matter, uh, yeah, you might see some, some change or even the Rio Grande or the Chama or the Rio de los Pinos, any of those, and you'll see, wow, kind of skimpy here. So I'm not a climate denier, denier, but I think the media finds something that riles people, and that's all you see and hear, you know, forever. Like, it's, it's August. If you're in Texas and it's August, you will be miserable. It will be near 100 degrees every day. That's it. So I think we've kind of overdone it with the stories about heat. And I think the problem is now it doesn't work. That story's dead. It's over. People are like, everything is climate change, climate change, climate change. And then the deniers and the right wingers out there that are like, this isn't real, you know, oh, well, it's just hot, all this stuff. 
So I think we should stop, tone it down, just do the statistics. That's it. Just give me the stats. Just give me the forecast. And they're wrong on the forecast 99% of the time. It's amazing. Amazingly consistent. Okay, point number 11. I was at the beach and I saw a couple. And they had a surfboard, a skimboard, a cooler, two chairs, a sunshade, towels, fins, a shower. They had multiple beach games. And they had a full clothing rack of beach clothing. They had bocce ball. And all of it was color matching. And all they did was shoot selfies nonstop. They were there the entire day shooting selfies in front of all these objects, and they never used a single one. Let me repeat that. There was a couple. They had a surfboard, a skimboard, a cooler, two chairs, a sunshade, towels, fins, shower, games, beach games, like the, I can't stand beach games, clothing, and bocce ball. All of it color matched. And all they did was move from object to object to object, shooting selfies and then conferencing with each other and then looking at their phones and looking at it. And you could just tell Instagrammers. I just, I, I so wanted to call in an airstrike. That's all I could think of is if I had powers, if I had a radio with pilot to pilot comms and, I, and there was a stray jet out of whatever airbase and I had to call it in on my own position, I would have done it. It was a four-hour crash course in the demise of our society and culture that these people, first of all, had bought or been loaned or traded or whatever. And it reminds me about something that I heard the other day. And then I have one more point, and that's it. The other day I was at, this, I was at, a, at a gathering outside. No mask. I shook hands. I hugged. Um, a couple of people kissed me on the cheek. I didn't get COVID. I wasn't thinking about COVID. I wasn't afraid of COVID. I was not in a bubble. I was not bubble boy. So I'm at this party and a woman I don't know looks at me and says, I really like your channel. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what does that mean? And then I realized, oh, she's talking about my YouTube channel. And she's like a marketing person, I think. She goes, "Um, yeah, I really like it. She goes, the problem you have is that you're too honest to be an influencer. And I was like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. She said, you are too honest to be an influencer. And I thought, again, that 100 free book list pretty much is foreshadowing a sign of the demise of humanity. And that quote from this person, and I was like, that's the best thing I've ever heard, is that, you know what, you could do this, but you're too honest. So unless you get a little bit less honest you're probably never going to have success at this. And I thought, well, I guess I'm never going to have success, but I thought it was hilarious. Okay, last point. I'm still searching for a camera. I know. I know. Calm down. I'm still searching for a camera. I don't feel like... So I had this daydream the other day that someone was like, oh, we're sending you to Peru. You're going to work on this project. Here's the story. We need you to shoot it, write it. I was like, great. Again, daydream. This didn't happen and this never will happen, but I'm daydreaming. And I'm like, okay, this is remote. It's going to be hard to get there. It's going to be cold. It's going to be raining. It's going to be high elevation. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be heat on the way there. I've got to be super light. I'm going one camera, one lens. What is it? And I'm like, in my head, I said, I don't have it. Don't have it. I'm not shooting motion and I'm not shooting 
stills in motion and all this and GoPros and all that. Nope, I'm taking a still camera and I'm taking um, my notebook. And that's it. And I'm like, I don't have the camera. It's certainly not the X-T2, which is my daily camera now. And it's not the X-T4. That's, that's a camera that I find strategic for certain things that I do, but it's not a camera I'm in love with. In fact, if I never used it again, I would probably not think that much about it. And again, it's a great camera. The Fuji stuff is fantastic. It really is. And for the price point, I don't think you can find anything better. Uh, it's not the Leica Q2 because it's a 28, and that's not my lens. It's not the Fuji X-Pro3 because it's the sensor's a little small for me, and it's not full frame. And so I don't know what my camera is, but I have a sinking suspicion that I'm going to be making some serious changes to my camera gear in the near future. And that could be literally selling everything I have with the exception of the Sony, the A7C, because I use that for my video on camera stuff. And it works for, for what it works for. It's great. It's very small. It's full frame. And it shoots 4K, it shoots 1080, it looks great. And I have two lenses for it, the 21.8, which works great for the on-camera stuff, and a 55, which I've used once, maybe, because I don't use that camera for a still camera. I should have never bought the 55. I don't particularly like the Sony lenses because there's no aperture control on them. The menu systems are too complex. I don't like the lack of dials on the top. Um, and I don't know the camera that has suddenly slotted into maybe the big maybe zone this goes rape this would be full circle for uncle dano this would mean uncle dano full circle no longer has to even make pictures because you know it's like a baseball player signing a contract for one day at the end of their career you know they played 20 years for the mariners and then they then they sold out and they went to seven other teams in five years. And then at the end of their career, they're like, I'm done. I'm washed up. I just want to retire with the same team that I started with. And they sign a one-day contract. And that happens all the time. This would be like that for me because I started with a screw mount Nikkor mat and a 35. And then I had a Nikon N2020. That was my first camera that I bought. And then I had FM2s and F3s and FE2s and F4s and F5s and F6s. Um, and so I used Nikon for a long time. And so this would be Nikon. It would be the Nikon Z8, which is rumored to come out, which is, would be like a Z9, but in a small body. Not with maybe all of the features, but when I look at that Z9, which is too big and there's way too many buttons on it for me to ever figure out, but I love the size of the Nikon Z8. And, and it's not out yet. There's just, you know, all these crazy people doing films about what the rumors are. But but I know that that camera would be would be uber capable and apparently again it has some sort of incredible ibis system which tells me i can't hand hold it um shoots 120 frames a second or some you know it's all it's way too over the top 45 megapixel full frame i love the ergonomics of nikon bodies i still think nikon cameras feel better in your hand than any other brand that's not to say again fuji the xt4 with a with a booster and the drive handle feels great the X-T2 is almost too small for my hands. But um, I don't know. I may, be, I may be doing the Nikon thing. The only thing that would keep me from doing the Nikon thing is the lenses. Because I cannot buy a small mirrorless body and put a 12-inch lens on the front. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. I want a small, fast, either 40 or 50 mil. That's small. And that doesn't cost $3,000 to get. I just want that. And I don't know if they make that. I know they make a 40 F2 pancake, but 
it's probably not considered like a super serious lens. It probably doesn't even have a lens shade, lens hood. So uh, those are weird. And then I'm sure there's a Fast 50 that's probably super expensive. And maybe there's a poor man's 50, like a 51.8 that I could get that would work. But anyway, it would keep the package small. I just want small people. That's all I want. And that's it. We're coming up on an hour. We've come to the end of yet another podcast for What It's Worth podcast. I appreciate you tuning in. These are random topics, none of which are that really important in our daily lives, I'm sure, except for that first point about checking your sources, man. This whole misinformation thing has become a, you know, it's professional now. We're, we've definitely got, we got a whole league. We've got teams. We've got logos. We've got all kinds of stuff. And we're all, we're all playing for some team or another. And it's time, it's time we ended this nonsense. So uh, I'll be back.